Navi Raju, Executive Director of the Centre for India and Global Business at Judge Business School in Cambridge. Can you tell us a little bit about your vision for setting up this global business school uh, on India? Yeah, the vision, Boni, of uh, this uh, Centre for India and Global Business is eventually to become a platform for research and engagement with the key stakeholders in the UK, in India, and abroad, who have a keen interest in helping shape India's role in the global knowledge economy. And shaping India's role, it's set to be a huge role in the world, isn't it? By 2030, one of the, the largest economies globally. This is indeed a very large vision that you've set yourself. Indeed, it is a large vision, and as you pointed out correctly, it is true that India is poised to become the third, the third largest you know, economy in the world within a matter of you know, a few decades. So that's why we think that it's very critical for the Judge Business School at a university like Cambridge to actually create a dedicated center like the one that uh, we have here to actually look at what role India is going to play, not only in a passive way in this global economy, but actually shape the future of this very world economy. And where do you see India going? I know that, that you blog on the Harvard Business School blog, uh, you talk about India, you write papers about India. You are indeed uh, the expert and the people uh, that others look to for, for advice on the Indian economy. Um, I think the, the vision that I have, at least personally, and also the center as well, is that we actually think that First of all, we think that a lot of Indian companies are going to go global in the coming decade. And you already see that, for example, with the Tata Group, which has a major presence worldwide already. You see some uh, biotech companies in India who are making acquisitions you know, around the world. So the first major trend we see happening uh, in India is that the globalization of India. Right? We already know that it's happening in the IT sector where you have companies like Vipro, TCS and Infosys who already you know, serve global markets. But that's almost like a warm-up exercise, so to speak. I mean, the real action now is going to just begin, the real kind of you know, action movie, so to speak, where you're going to see actually more Indian companies actually going global. And in the process, I think you're going to see the true globalization of the Indian economy taking place you know, in the coming decade. And it's very much about the workers, isn't it, and skilling the workers within the Indian economy. I think you're set to supply like a quarter of all workers to the world economy in the future. That's staggering. It is, and actually that's a number that people don't realize is that unlike other countries, if you pick China, for example, its economy or its workforce is going to start aging by the year 2025, let's say, roughly. Whereas India will have an amazing demographic growth going on for several decades to come, almost until 2050. So what it means is that indeed, as you pointed out, you know, by 2020, it's estimated that nearly a quarter of you know, workers worldwide will be you know, uh, in India. And to give you an idea as well, there is about uh, 14 million uh, new workers who are joining the workforce in India, for example. Right? So the numbers are staggering. So clearly it means that you know, when we talk about... Um, a global workforce, I think it's important to realize that any company in the future who has a global workforce will have a significant percentage of the workforce based in India. That, I think, is very significant. And I have to confess to having read your blog, so I know there is some discussion on your blog about the fact that it's not about the quantity of the workforce, but the quality of those workers and whether they can match the quality of the workers in the Western economies. Right. That's a very good point, Boni, because I think uh, there is a lot of a pride in India, of course, rightfully so, 
that we are going to be producing, you know, these amazing, you know, millions of workers who are going to be working, you know, not only for Indian companies, but potentially for multinationals as well. But the question is, uh, the key operative word here is employability, right? In other words, you need to make sure that these workers have the right skills that are attractive for these companies. For example, if I am a multinational company uh, who is in the manufacturing sector, I want to open a factory in India. I want to find people who are trained in production processes, for example, who have some basic knowledge of manufacturing, for example. Unfortunately, what we are finding is that the skills level of general skills level of the Indian workforce, except for some high-end occupations like, you know, R&D, for example, the skills level is relatively limited. Uh, and that, I think, could potentially hamper the growth of India because it may have a sizable pool of workers, quantitatively speaking, but qualitatively speaking, that pool may not be well qualified enough to attract you know, enough multinationals who may be willing to employ them. And there's another issue on your blog, isn't it? While we might see the whole of, of India uh, plugged into to their, their mobile phones, the internet, your very technical society, well ahead of, of other developing economies. Actually, have you got the infrastructure in terms of, of the roads to get you from it? A to B. Uh, that's a good point. I mean, uh, it's true that we often look at, uh, you know, India's kind of dismal infrastructure, the physical infrastructure, like, you know, roads, you know, ports, and, you know, and, and the railway system, etc. But the fact remains that when you really look at um, the use of the technologies, like, you know, as you pointed out, like, you know, mobile computing, for example, it's pretty well developed. As a matter of fact, there are some companies like Nokia and Microsoft, for example, who are primarily targeting today as we speak, their primary market right now is in the rural areas. In those places where typically, you know, you don't see any kind of, you know, concrete road, right, for miles to, you know, to see. Yet, those are the places where actually these companies like, you know, Nokia and Microsoft are experimenting with some new technologies, such as wireless, you know, technology, for example, or satellite technologies, which can actually bring interesting technologies for the use of the masses. So clearly what it, what it means is that while the, you know, 19th type of century infrastructure, roads, etc., may not be yet completely, you know, deployed across India, what we are seeing is that the 21st century technologies, like mobile technologies, are actually being deployed in a very wide scale at every level, you know, of the Indian society, including the rural areas. So... You clearly think these, these problems uh, will balance out and that, that India will go on to dominate the world in the future. Um, I, I do believe so. I do believe that India definitely will dominate you know, the world economy in the coming decades. I think it's not even a futuristic statement. I think it's already happening. Uh, if you look at companies like uh, John Deere, for example, they've invented this uh, kind of uh, mid-scale tractor for the Indian market, which now is finding, guess what, an interesting market in U.S., because of the economic recession, suddenly some of these low-cost products being made in India are being, uh, you know, uh, positioned as a very attractive kind of offering for even Western, you know, kind of consumers who have facing like, you know, economic, you know, kind of, you know, uh, you know crisis or, you know, uh, credit crunch, basically. And so I think it's already happening. This kind of, you know, domination has begun. Uh, but I think you are going to see almost like an acceleration of this phenomenon in coming decades as you see more Indian companies going global. Uh, I mean, Slumdog Millionaire comes to mind, right? So you're going to see also the globalization of uh, uh, Bollywood, for example, right? It's going to be the next, you know, uh, sector to go global. Have you 
ever sort of woken up and in the night scratched your head and just think, what is it about India that gives rise to this particular type of enterprise, innovation, invention, domination of global economies at the present time? Is, isn't it a bit like our Victoria and Albert and, and the Victorian times when, right. you know, we just went ahead with the manufacturing revolution that was going through the world? Right. I think that's a very good point. And our research actually shows that as it comes to um, the, the kind of the, the onset of India's domination of the world economy, of course, I did mention about, you know, Indian companies, you know, eventually kind of, you know, make a, make a, having a broader footprint in the world economy. But more importantly, what we are seeing is that it's actually the ingenuity of some of the individual people in India. In other words, what we are seeing is that actually it's not big corporations that are the most innovative sometime in India, but also some of these social entrepreneurs, for example, in villages, where you might find interesting startup in, you know, uh, in a city that might have a bright idea and then go ahead and, you know, start this company, right? So essentially what I'm saying is that the, I think the, the secret sauce I see for India is not necessarily unlike what you hear, you know, we don't have like, you know, Fortune 500 companies, but what we have is basically, you know, 1.2 billion brains, <laughs> right, readily available to be connected. And what happens is that when these 1.1 billion brains get connected, then you basically have, you know, uh, you know, an amazing brain power, right? An amazing kind of powerhouse, so to speak, that you can tap into. So that's really what's happening. It's not necessarily 500 companies, you know, going global, but actually 1.2 billion brains being connected, you know, to the rest of the world. So, so that must be what you attribute India's phenomenal success to. This, it's a can-do attitude, isn't it? Absolutely. I think there is a the kind of can-do attitude, and uh, as we say, necessity is the mother of invention. And anybody who has visited India knows that the conditions of living are pretty tough. Yeah, you mentioned and Slumdog Millionaire. That's been a controversial film. That's exactly. But I think Slumdog Millionaire is controversial, you're right. And at the same time, it does convey, in my opinion, the, the Indian you know, spirit, which is basically you know, the ability to triumph over you know, adversity. Right? And I think adversity, you find that everywhere in India, right? We have a lot of bureaucracy, we have a lot of poverty, we have dismal infrastructure, all these problems, yet these problems, rather than uh, constraining people, actually stimulates their creativity. In a certain way, I would say that, you know, these uh, socioeconomic constra constraints that India, you know, in the West, think we think is plagued with, actually act as almost like a stimulus or a catalyst for innovation in India. If we then look to the role of the Centre for India and Global Business, you're the Executive Director at Navi Raju. What would you like to see it achieving in the next 18 months? Sure. The first thing we want to do is actually celebrate, as I said, these innovators you know, in India. Because I think that a lot of innovators, of course, may be well-known you know, in the West, but there are many of them who are below the radar, so to speak. So the first, one of the first kind of goal that we have set ourselves is to kind of uh, celebrate the innovations emanating from India. Because I think it's important for the rest of the world to acknowledge that you know, in India is not just a low-cost kind of place to source products and, and, and talent, but also it's a fertile ground for innovative ideas and even innovative business models. So we want to essentially, first of all, showcase and celebrate these amazing innovators that are doing amazing things in out of India. The second thing we want to do is also, more importantly, 
act as a conduit or a broker between the West and the East. Connecting those minds. That's exactly right, because I think we want to be the connector in a certain way of minds, because I think what's important is that increasingly as India integrates in the worldwide economy, there's still a lot of you know, misconceptions or mis kind of, uh, you know, uh, perceived ideas or, or, or concepts about India. And I think it's important that here at the center we try and kind of you know, dispel some of these you know, myths about India and try to kind of help you know, some of the Western companies and Western scholars to better understand and integrate and engage with India as well, and vice versa, help Indian companies and Indian academics and policymakers better understand and engage with the Western world as well. Do you think we are in a recession, if not a global depression? Do you think that Western companies will continue to relocate their, their R&D functions, research and development to India, or, or do you think there is naturally going to be a slowdown of that transfer? Right. I think actually the global economic recession could be a big boon for India if it plays its card well. Because as you pointed out correctly, Boni, it's true that you know a lot of CEOs in the West are going to look for a way to lean out the cost structure. And naturally, they're going to decide that it's a good idea to actually move or shift some of their high-end activities like R&D to a country like India, where you can find plentiful of PhDs at a decent cost. But our research shows clearly that cost alone isn't the biggest driver to convince the CEO to relocate activities in India. The more important criteria is the quality of talent. So therefore, yes, definitely India can benefit from this recession by attracting more R&D work, for example, from the West, as long as it's capable of producing enough quality talent that goes back to the problem of, you know, skill level, right? As long as it can maintain a good high-level, you know, quality, you know, workforce, then yes, this, you know, magic formula will play out. Otherwise, uh, guess what? You know, if I'm a Western CEO, I can as well go to China, which is also producing, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of, you know, high-quality, you know, engineers and scientists. But there is also a serious side to this, isn't it? Because uh, we talk about the, the recession but uh, the homegrown uh, markets in India might, might well contract because the Indian population is most of it living on less than a dollar a day. Right. It's true that the Indian market you know, uh, has been growing steadily in the last you know, uh, few years. And the good news is that actually what we are finding is that even in those markets that uh, about 300 million people in India will earn less than a dollar a day, but if you think about it, it may be $1 a day, but then in these people are not individuals. They often live in communities. And what we are finding is that these communities actually collectively have enough purchasing power to avail of you know, consumer goods, for example, even a TV, for example, as long as it's made for that particular market. So you're going to see, there, you're going to see therefore, some very interesting creative kind of uh, trimmed down versions of products being targeted to those low-end markets in India. For example, we have uh, Godrej, which is a famous you know, white goods uh, appliance maker in India, which, is as, which has recently announced a kind of low-end version of their refrigerator, which is targeted effectively to that you know, low-end market. So you heard about the nano car, which is going to be you know, sold for about you know, 2,500 pounds, uh, dollars, for example. So you're coming back to the necessity being the mother of invention, and, right. and indeed those words that, that will be writ large on your website for the Centre for India and Global Business, which is innovation and internationalism. 
Absolutely. I think the, the kind of key kind of operative words or key words that uh, we want to kind of uh, convey from our center is innovation and globalization. Because what it means is that we see India increasingly globalizing on the back of innovation in the sense that you will see multinational coming to India primarily to source innovation. And similarly, we think that Indian companies were able to succeed and become global you know, competitors on the back of innovation because they will have, you know, cutting-edge processes and cutting-edge, you know, uh, you know, technology infrastructure, for example. So it means that innovation, globalization, and India, these are the kind of three magic words, if you like, that we think um, are going to kind of uh, be the kind of uh, um, uh, the most important themes that we want to cover in the center and how they integrate. And, and clearly, because we are in this, this sort of downturn in world global economies, there must be something in it for the UK and Cambridge too, to, to actually connect through uh, your new centre for India and global business. Absolutely, uh, because indeed, uh, while India, as I described earlier, has an amazing potential uh, to become a leader in the world economy, it also faces a lot of challenges, right? Challenges related to education, primarily we talked about it, challenges related to infrastructure, challenges related to you know agriculture. Every sector in India is facing serious problems. Water shortage is another big problem developing in India. So I think clearly when you look at Cambridge and the kind of um, uh, research and educational kind of capabilities we have around these very topics of you know, education or you know, infrastructure, sustainability, these are indeed the areas where the Cambridge University can help India address those particular challenges. Because unless those challenges are addressed in India, I think it's going to be just a potential unrealized for India. So I think what I see actually um, Cambridge doing is not only help India achieve its full potential by developing its core competencies, but also help overcome some of these very formidable obstacles it's going to be facing on its way to becoming a world superpower. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, Navi Raju, uh, Executive Director of the Centre for India and Global Business. Why did you have this particular vision at this particular time? I have this particular vision at this particular time because I spent, um, of course, 10 years in the United States. And, uh, and it became clear to me in the recent years that uh, clearly we are seeing, it is, uh, you know, kind of a, what we call an epochal change in world history, right? And this is something that the stuff that I read in history books, you know, maybe like, you know, the fact that, you know, 500 years ago, the West actually, you know, uh, rose and become kind of the dominant, you know, uh, hemisphere in the world economy. And it seems like now history is repeating itself because if you look at, you know, a uh, lot of interesting studies, uh, 600 years ago, India and China actually were some of the world's, you know, largest GDPs, largest economies. So in a certain way, they're just kind of uh, reclaiming their legitimate status as world powers, you know, uh, you know, now. So I'm very excited to be, you know, here at this very historic moment to in a certain way help India kind of, you know, rightfully reclaim its status as, you know, a world power. And, and some people might say, um, well, it's a, it's a website, you know, you're linking people, connecting people uh, through your own website and fulfilling your vision in that way. Can a website be that powerful? I do believe that the website is very powerful. And the reason is very simple. You see, because half the population of India by 2025 will be below 25. <laughs> so, and if you look at the kind of... Uh, psychographic profile of these young people, not only in India, right, but you can look around the world. We are, these are what we call the digital natives. 
these are the kids who basically are almost born with an iPod attached to them, right? So they basically are completely, uh, you know, uh, immersed in technology in a way that we are not, you know, in our generation. So it's very important for us that, indeed, through a website, we not only engage the current generation, but more importantly, the emerging generation, the next generation leaders, who are going to be these digital natives. And therefore, I do believe indeed that having a website as not just the, you know, the kind of the, you know, the front end of the center, but the core of the center will be our way to show to this next generation that we actually care about them, but more importantly, we want to engage them and collaborate with them online. And you have got a star-studded lineup. Of, of individuals who are going to be contributing to the content on that website, haven't you? Can you just tell us a few sure, of the names? Absolutely. Indeed, yeah, we are going to have some amazing uh, speakers, you know, who are going to be, uh, you know, contributing podcasts, for example, to this website. Uh, we are going to have, of course, you know, Professor Jadeep Prabhu, who is a Jawaharlal Nehru Professor of Indian Business uh, at the Judge School, who is going to be contributing, uh, you know, interesting uh, thought leadership to this website. Uh, we will also have uh, Dr. Michael Barrett, who is going to be talking about uh, globalization and the challenge of managing uh, global teams uh, against the backdrop of uh, outsourcing to India. And then we will have other interesting uh, speakers as well and contributors coming from outside you know, uh, the judge school. Uh, we are going to have uh, Bhaskar Vira, who is a professor in the Department of uh, Geography, who is going to be talking about uh, the importance of uh, uh, quality of life for outsourcing workers in India, for example. And then most importantly, we are going to be uh, opening it up, this website, for contribution to external experts as well. And you're going to see sooner than later uh, corporate leaders, policymakers, and others from other countries actually contributing interesting uh, you know, ideas as well into this website. So, so finally, if we have to, as I said, come back and, and talk to you uh, in 18 months' time, how do you think you will rate the success of your Centre for India and Global Business? I think in 18 months, I see definitely our centre being, I guess you can call it the talk of the town. <laughs> uh, because well, I think the talk of India. <laughs> the talk of India, at least, because we are hoping is that indeed in 18 months what will happen is that our website in particular will become the go-to place for anybody in the world who has a keen interest in India's you know, future. So we actually believe that you know, our um, you know, URL will be in the bookmark of every single you know, uh, you know, web browser sitting on every you know, computer around the world. Uh, that's an incredible vision, really, isn't it? We're back to Caxton and the printing press and, and the Book of Kells almost. Absolutely, and I think it's a vision that could materialize very well because, as I said, all the conditions are united for this to happen, right? Because, you know, India is definitely, you know, moving up, you know, uh, you know, on the world stage. And I think that, you know, uh, the West is eager to engage India as well. So we think that actually we are going to simply ride this wave, so to speak, this geopolitical wave, so to speak, where we are seeing tremendous synergies emerging between the West and the East as we speak. So clearly I think that um, our task is cut out to kind of, you know, uh, develop and, you know, and, and nurture this, uh, you know, center. But I'm pretty confident that we'll be able to leverage, you know, all the resources we have within the Cambridge University, first of all, but also this global network of individuals who have such a keen interest in India and a passion almost for its future development. So by tapping into all this expertise available within the university and abroad, I'm pretty confident that we can turn this vision into, you know, uh, a reality. 
the talk of the town. Uh, Navi Ragju, thank you very much indeed for talking to uh, the Judge Business School Centre for India and Global Business podcast series today. I wish you luck. Thank you so much, Bonnie. It takes gifted individuals to achieve these things. Absolutely. I agree. can't agree more with you. <laughs>